everyone, welcome to Metamorphosis. My name is Tina. And my name is Faison. I'm here on the Metamorphosis podcast. We are interviewing various physicians across BC with the aim of learning more about their specialties and helping us to navigate our medical careers. We have a very special guest joining us today, Dr. Cheryl Holmes, who is the Associate Dean Undergraduate Medical Education Program at UBC. Dr. Holmes is also a critical care specialist. Um, I know, Dr. Holmes, you left Kelowna today at 5.30 a.m. to be in Vancouver here today. So firstly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tina, and thank you, Faizan. It's my pleasure. If you could just start off by telling us a little bit more about yourself and your journey to medicine. Um, I think just like many of you, it was just the whole fascination with the science and with life um, I was in grade four and we were doing the chicken um, experiment where we have the egg in the window and you look at the embryo at different phases and I thought, wow, how can two cells become an organism? How on earth does that happen? And so I was hooked right then and there. It was like, you know, it was, pat it was charted. So you knew from a relatively young age then that you wanted to do medicine? Yes. And then at what point did you decide to go into to critical care or how, how was your journey into medicine? Well, um, I got into medical school um, fairly young, but I already had two children. And so I always thought I wanted to specialize, but it wasn't practical when my kids were young. So I, uh, in those days you could do a rotating internship. So I did a rotating internship at Royal Columbian Hospital. And then I started my own general practice, mm -hmm. family practice in Abbotsford in the uh, 1980s and it was uh, really enjoyable and I did that for 10 years and then when my kids got into university then I uh, wanted to get back into training and I was very fortunate at that time to get a re-entry position into internal medicine and then it was my first month rotation in the ICU as a an internal medicine resident that I thought, wow, this is this is my happy place. I love this. And that's when I got hooked on critical care. What was that transition like for you between family medicine and internal? <laughs> it was um, pretty smooth, I have to say, because one thing that family medicine teaches you is how to be a doctor and how to communicate with your patients because um, they won't come back to you if they don't like you. So many of us in specialties, the patient doesn't have a choice. They didn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I think I'll see Dr. Holmes, the intensivist in the intensive care unit, you know, so they don't really have a choice. But in family medicine, um, they do. And uh, you learn how to talk to people and how to meet them where they're at. And you learn time efficiency and you learn all of those um, other roles that are so important. And so coming back into internal medicine residency, it was, okay, I know what I know and I know what I need to know. And it was pretty smooth, actually. It was really great. What was the drive for you to go back to seek more training, given that you'd already had a successful career in family medicine? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I was the full service family doc, so I did my own OR assists. I saw my own patients in eMERGE. I admitted my patients to hospital. I delivered their babies. Um, I saw them in nursing homes. Um, and then I did emergency room uh, shifts at night. 
So I did the whole spectrum and I really started to become very drawn to acute medicine, um, hospital-based medicine. So probably um, now, if that, if the re-entry avenue hadn't been open to me, I probably would have gone into be a hospitalist, you know, and that wasn't a thing back then. I mean, family docs saw their own patients in hospital, but to have a primarily hospital-based practice was what I was looking for. I really liked the acute side of medicine. Could you tell us a little bit more about what a critical care specialist does for our listeners who may not know uh, what that entails? Well, um, this is how I explain it to my family and friends is we look after people on life support. So however somebody ends up on life support, that's how we end up getting involved in their care or somebody who might need to get on life support. Um, so those are there's usually three different pathways, three pathways. Um, one is shock, so circulatory failure. Uh, the second is um, respiratory failure. And the third is coma um, or a combination of those. Those are very common reasons for people to need um, critical care. And it could be in the setting of an acute medical illness, um, such as um, severe pneumonia with hypoxemia or um, severe sepsis or septic shock from necrotizing fasciitis or um, cholecystitis or it um, it could be an, a trauma situation so many trauma patients end up in critical care units or it could be um, from the OR so post-operative um, complication that was unforeseen or a very high risk patient that needed to be operated on that needs to come to ICU. So those are kind of the three types of conditions in the three patient populations. And the critical care unit that I worked in, it was about a third, a third, a third. Third trauma, a third medical, and a third um, surgical. So could you tell us a little bit more about uh, what a typical day looked like um, when you were practicing in critical care? Okay. So most intensivists, um, you know, work a week at a time and they'll do either shifts during that week or they'll work every day during that week. Um, When I started in the Kelowna ICU, it was the model where, you know, it was the intensivist of the week and we saw everything coming in and out of that ICU for the whole week. And so whether it was consults in the emergency department or the surgical ward or post-anesthetic recovery um, uh, or calls from uh, other centers wanting to send sick patients, we triaged and looked after everything. So there's the element of rounding on the patients who are already in the ICU, so doing multidisciplinary rounds. So we try and get those done by noon, if possible, so that the nurses, the RTs, the, um, all the members of the multidisciplinary team have got the plan for the day. And if we're going to take the person off life support because they're doing better, you know, we've got a plan to do that you know, in the morning or early afternoon So if they fail, there's time to put them back on life support. So rounds are a really big part of that. But because we're getting consults from eMERGE and the OR and PAR and other hospitals um, and the wards, you know, there's a lot of running around that goes on in between. And so um, 
you know, in most of the busy ICUs now, it's kind of a divide and conquer strategy. You've got a, a team that will go and do outreach on the wards or a team that will be intake and emerge, and then the team that's rounding. In those days, we kind of had to juggle all three. So it was hard to be in three places at once sometimes, but that's what it was like. Could you speak to us about the patient demographic that you're likely to see at MCU? Oh, well, everything from, you know, two years old to 96, literally. So um, most pediatric, uh, most centers have a pedi large centers have a pediatric ICU, but um, ours didn't. Our, our children had to go to Children's Hospital to the ICU. So sometimes they had to come to us to be stabilized first, which was, you know, often terrifying for people who work on adults to have a very, very tiny person there um, that you have to stabilize. But, you know, they'll come because of um, acute asthma attack or um, sepsis with shock or, um, you know, any number of pro or seizures, those would be three common things um, that we would have to stabilize until the tra transport team came and got them. Right up to um, young adults, you know, with trauma or overdoses, middle-aged adults with trauma, overdoses, illnesses, older adults with a lot of comorbid problems who are high risk for surgery or came down with an acute complication of something to, you know, even really elderly people. I had a 96-year-old man in our ICU and a 92-year-old woman at one point. So basically anybody who is deemed to benefit from critical care. Something that comes up a lot in the decision-making process for students like ourselves <clears throat> who are still trying to pick a specialty is this point of longitudinal care. And having been on both ends of the spectrum in regards to acuity, um, coming from family med and the ICU, could you talk to us about what opportunities there are for longitudinal care within ICU? Does that exist at all? And what kind of relationship do you have with your patients? Yeah, not in the traditional sense of the way the ICU is set up. There isn't really that opportunity for longitudinal care. So except if you are... Um, a physician who has a practice outside of the ICU. You can see people in follow-up. Um, so that is possible. Um, in some centers, they're doing um, ICU follow-up clinics, which is, I think, going to be the way of the future. Um, but in the traditional way that our ICU was set up, because it was such a scarce resource, as soon as the patient is discharged from the ICU and transferred, um, uh, to a hospital ward, they go under the care of the physician who referred them or the primary care physician or a hospitalist or another physician. And, you know, often we'll find out, you know, how they did and so on. And then there's people who, you know, they have more than one admission to ICU and we get to know them. People with um, diseases that have are chronic but have acute flares, so we will kind of get to know them. And uh, yeah, that's that's usually the only opportunity. So you did a one-year fellowship after doing internal medicine to be able to work in the ICU. 
It's two years. Two years? Yeah, so I did three years of internal medicine, and in my fourth year of internal medicine, I started my first year of critical care, so there's that overlap year. And then there's a second, then there's critical care is a two-year program. And then I did a year of critical care research. So I did it six years after coming back. Wow. Yeah. Um, are there other avenues to entering critical care? Or is it just an internal? No, um, that's a very good question. Um, so intensivists around the world, you know, different countries, there's different venues. So in the UK, for instance, many of them are anesthesiologists who do critical care, or in Australia, anesthesiologists. In the US, it's uh, respiratory critical care. Um, but it's becoming quite broad now, where in most countries and in Canada, you can do virtually any specialty and end up in critical care. So we've had emergency physicians who do two years of critical care, um, infectious disease, which again is internal medicine, general surgery, trauma surgery. Where I came from, we had a cardiac surgeon who did critical care, um, a cardiac anesthesiologist who did critical care, general internists, so basically anything. And in some of the rural and remote areas, they are recruiting family docs to cover the critical care unit at night. So they don't do a two-year fellowship, but they, they do extra training to now to enable them to cover the critical care unit at night so that the intensivist skills during the day can be extended. Could you tell us what are some of the best parts of doing that job? So many aspects of it that I love. I love, um, first of all, the acuity of seeing people who, someone who is really, really critically ill and um, having some tools to be able to um, convert them from unstable to stable is really satisfying. And not only because you're helping the patient and their family, but you're also helping your fellow physicians. Often they're referring to you somebody that is beyond their skill set, that they don't have the resources to deal with in the setting that the patient is in. And so to be able to come in in the middle of the night and say, we can deal with this, no problem. Um, you can go home, relax. Uh, We'll, we'll take them, we'll deal with them, we'll bring them, we'll stabilize them, and it's, it's really, really satisfying. Also to deal with um, families um, about stuff that really matters to them. And um, the other thing that always blew me away was how patients' families, how trusting they are. I mean, they've just met you. You literally walk in the door and they already identify that you're someone who's there to help and that you're gonna help them. And that's there's that implicit trust and that they're willing to share with you the person's, um, you know, the patient's values about what's important to them and really get at those really deep, meaningful conversations like right off the bat is just immensely satisfying and, um, amazing the also the other thing is my colleagues is just working with the other team members to just see the high level of skill and commitment um, from from the nurses to the RTs to the social workers um, pastoral care dietitians 
occupational therapy, physiotherapy, pharmacy, all the support and, and the commitment and everybody working to a common goal and be, really being part of a team. I think it's it's the biggest team environment in the hospital. Oh, and my colleagues, my fellow intensivists, and the surgeons and internists and family docs and oncologists and everybody else who comes in. So we work in a very much in a fishbowl and it's very collaborative. There's a lot of communication. It's just really, really a satisfying work environment. And then I think the, the last thing is that every day you learn something. So there wasn't a day that I didn't learn something, that I didn't learn something that I didn't know or see something I hadn't seen or do something I hadn't done before or come across a situation I've never come across or meet somebody just really totally interesting. I mean, people are interesting, you know, and everybody is different and every story is different. So just that daily, you know, fascination. And some of the things that, you know, the year one students said to me, you know, there's so much information coming at us, we can't possibly know it all. And I'm going, yeah, but you know what, in the, at the end of the day and at the at when you're mid-career and end career, that's what's going to keep you in the game is not knowing everything. It's just, mm. it, that's what keeps us there. It's fascinating. Mm. So I think I've covered the team environment, the patients and their families, and then the, just the knowledge. And it's changing at such a fast rate. Critical care is really changing. Could you speak to some of those changes? Yeah, so the changes that I saw, you know, from training to um, practice was, you know, how we managed um, ARDS, for example, with lung protective ventilation. You know, Sorry, we, what is ARDS? So acute respiratory distress syndrome. So we've seen the mortality of ARDS go from uh, over 50% to under 20% just in my my career and it's not just the way that we ventilate patients now with lung protective ventilation but it's the way that we care for the whole patient all of the attention to detail you know from you know how we how patients are nursed and turned and and cared for you know um, upright and um, the, the enteral feeding, the, the attention to electrolytes, the attention to minimizing, it, you know, really the changes I've seen is minimizing, minimizing tidal volumes, minimizing um, antibiotic exposure, minimizing sedation, you know, with sedation vacations, minimizing length of mechanical ventilation. So ventilator days are way down now. And just all of those things leading to better outcomes and better survival, not just in ARDS, but in everything else. And now we're kind of in the in the era of the brain. You know, the brain is being a big mystery to us, brain injury from bleeds, trauma, hypoxia, and all of the new neural monitoring modalities and you know, changes in prognostication and outcomes. That's kind of the the new fascinating waves so yeah there's been a lot of changes is there anything you didn't enjoy about critical care anything you could have done less of you know i wish i knew back in my early days what i know now 
in terms of, you know, even though I thought I was a good communicator with patients and families, even being more patient-centered and patient-focused and really, really focusing on what's important to you. You know, if, you know, at this end of my career, I say to families, okay, if your dad was sitting in this room with us now, we were talking about his condition, what would he say is important to him? And really focusing on that because there's so much we can do with technology and drugs and so on. But what is it we should be doing? And what is important to the patient and their family? And I can't tell you how many patients will say to me, you know, we didn't we didn't feel like we had permission to say dad wouldn't have wanted this, you know. Mm-hmm. And yet there's other situations that we um, air quotes deem hopeless that for the patient, you know, even a few more days or a few more weeks is a big deal to them because of whatever reason they have, you know. So just being more respectful of what what people really want, what's important to them, I think that's been the biggest change for me. And if I was going to speak to my younger self, I would say do less talking and more listening. So you've mentioned a few traits that appear to be very useful in ICU, being a good team worker, a good team player, sorry, Um, having curiosity, being a good communicator. Um, I would imagine being quick on your feet. Is there a certain personality type that you think suits ICU better, worse or better? And could you describe what that would be? Yeah, I think it's changing, though. I think that, um, you know, when I trained, it was like, be tough, like show no weakness, show no fear, show no fatigue. You know, I think that's changing because internalizing all of that takes an emotional toll. And those of us who, you know, had those behaviors, um, probably, you know, it leads to burnout. And that's not a desirable outcome for anybody, you know. So I don't think there's personality traits. I think there's behaviors that will lead you to a longer and more successful career in whatever it is. And ICU would be one of them. So the biggest thing is sleep when you can. Like, If you're tired, don't stay up, you know, distracting your mind with your device. Shut it off and go to sleep. (laughs) Like, go to bed and go to sleep. Like, recharge yourself. And I used to even bank my sleep before, you know, my weeks on call. I start leading up, I would start sleeping, you know, um, 12, 13 hours for a couple of days to really bank it. And if I was, when I was off, go to bed go to bed it's five o'clock doesn't matter five o'clock at night go to bed because you're going to be you have to be fresh the next morning so that's the biggest thing and then the second is um you know paying attention to uh things that fill you whether it's meditation yoga exercise you know, being with your friends, figure out what are those things that refill your well and 
pay attention to that. And then the third would be find people in your tribe at work that you can really have meaningful conversations with and debrief so that you don't just internalize it. And we're getting better at that now and we're formalizing it in things called the warm debrief, you know, like after the dust has settled and the blood has been, you know, mopped up, get the team back together couple hours later and just debrief about it so that people have a chance to talk through some of the things they were afraid of and feared and uh, you know have those conversations and that really helps you to not carry and internalize a lot of stuff that you don't need to you don't need to be alone in this business you know that's the whole point of a team and I've had social workers in our unit come to me and say how are you doing Dr. Holmes and close the door and debrief with me. I've had family members do that. I had one family, one woman, she came and put her arm around me and said, Dr. Holmes, like he and I've already had this conversation. We're good for him to go now, but you need to let him go. You need to say goodbye. And you know, so that was kind of amazing. Do you find that's a general shift in the culture of ICU now that these things are being more and more? Very much so, very much so. And there's, you know, a lot of good studies on moral distress in ICU. And there was one really great study that was just recently published where they actually um, did some simulation um, of, of morally distressing situations and then debriefing around it. And so, yeah, and it really did, it has been shown to decrease moral distress in the real situation because it improves your agency when you feel like you're in a situation where you can't do anything about it. Um, that leads to a lot of distress. But when you um, can debrief with other people and find that agency again in yourself, it really helps. These are all really excellent tips and good advice for um, something that I wanted to ask you about. You've published quite a bit of literature about the hidden curriculum and students using empathy throughout clerkship and throughout their training years. Could you speak to us a little bit more about that? Oh, I would love to. That's my passion. Um, so this arose out of my work, um, this area of interest, and in patient safety. I, I when I started out as a medical educator and then doing my master's in medical education at University of Illinois, Chicago, I wanted to do my thesis around patient safety. And I thought, if I could just get a $2 million grant, we could create the best patient safety curriculum the world has ever seen. And, um, you know, it's going to be safer. And one of my nurse educators came in and said, Cheryl, you know, I got a problem with your students. She said, you know, the year threes, they come in, I orient them to the OR, I tell them they will always wear the mask and they'll always never carry food or drink into the OR, and they sign on the line, and the very next day, they're following behind their preceptor who's got his mask hanging down around his neck carrying a cup of coffee, and they've got their mask hanging down around their neck and carrying a cup of coffee. And it was like, blink, I came right up against the hidden curriculum, which is far more powerful than any of the formal or informal curriculum. And the educator's work is undone in an instant. So that made me rethink my fancy-dancy patient safety curriculum. And I really had to think about 
the hidden curriculum and how a power hierarchies are transmitted and how what it is what what you say about the patient behind closed doors or when they're asleep on the operating table you know how those conversations suddenly become okay and all of that stuff and i started looking at you know the ICU as my little um, laboratory of trying stuff out and thinking about things and really seeing my own behaviors now with, with a different lens and with the learner's eyes. And then um, we, uh, we did a study um, where we took clerkship students, um, Dr. Harry Miller and I, he's a clinical psychologist at the Southern Medical Program. And uh, we had clinical clerks right from the when they started clerkship, and we met with them every four to six weeks for 10 sessions, and we debriefed with them over a year about what they were seeing in the hidden curriculum and how it was affecting them and how they may imagine themselves to be contributing to that hidden curriculum themselves in the future. And so it really was very transformative work for me. And I just, I can't thank these students enough because it really helped me to unpack a lot of behaviors that I thought were part and parcel of being a physician that really weren't, didn't belong there. And seeing my behaviors a lot differently. And um, so that was very amazing work. Could you tell us some examples about some of those behaviors? They don't have to be your own. Yeah, well, you know, uh, you, the behaviors that I shared with my students were my own behaviors, um, things that, you know, um, we all have bad days. I don't believe there's any bad people. I think there's just bad days. I believe all behaviors within a context. And, um, you know, we're all capable of saying and doing things that later we go, you know, really, that, that didn't belong there. And in the past, kind of sweeping it under the carpet, moving on, hoping nobody noticed, and they all do, everybody notices. And so what I learned was to stop and debrief with somebody right away. Say, you know, that didn't go well. What, what was your take on it? And sometimes we're beating ourselves up more than we need to be. You know, that voice just never stops talking. And, and sometimes they go, yeah, what did you think? I didn't think that went too well. And, you know, you need to go back and apologize to the person or have another family meeting and and just really apologize for what you said or, or and, and, and admit that, you know, in that moment, what you did wasn't right. And I think that that um, kind of authenticity creates and vulnerability creates greater connections between you and your team members and greater trust. And that's what I found out that instead of just being tough and saying, well, you know what, it was, it was a critical situation and they should just be aware that sometimes you're gonna say stuff like that, you know? Um, instead say, no, it doesn't matter what the situation was, you didn't deserve to be talked to like that and I am truly sorry. And, you know, 
um, just being open and honest with people. How common do you think change. that is in the culture of medicine today? Does that vary between specialties? This ability to, you know, be self-critical, analyze your actions, and say, I made a mistake, I did something wrong, I wish I could have done it better, I'm sorry. Well, I think we're training more reflective practitioners, don't you? I mean, I, I, I'm constantly seeing it in our postgraduate trainees, our residents, our fellows, incredibly reflective people. Those of us who were trained in the 80s, let me tell you, we were never trained to be reflective. It was like, close the curtain and move on, or you can't be of any use to the next person. That was what we were told. We were never taught to be reflective. So absolutely, I'm seeing a huge, huge shift. And I think the other thing about that is we can reflect on what we know, and we can reflect on what we don't know. But we can't reflect on what we don't know we don't know. And that's where you can't just self-reflect because that just becomes rumination. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't open up your blind spots to where you don't know what you don't know. You need other people to be honest with you and to help you with that. And so if you're not authentic and honest with them, you're not gonna get that back. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you can start to move to the next level and be really effective in your relationships. And it's very, very important because the patient in the ICU, they're going to live or they're going to die. It's kind of binary. Um, and what you learn in critical care training is what the limits are. And you have more comfort at that zone of knowing that nothing more could be done and knowing that everything had been done and the outcome was gonna be the outcome. But that's for the patient, for the families. They can suffer pretty bad post-traumatic stress disorder and depression and anxiety in the families of ICU survivors or people who didn't make the ICU, the family members, is very real. And that was another thing I didn't realize early on in my training that the families were my patient too. And that how I dealt with them could have a really profound effect on how, how it was gonna affect them for the next six months or a year. Do you have advice for us on how to approach complex family dynamics? Spend time with them. So this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, that, uh, you know, patients' families, it was, wasn't really what you said. It was how much time you spent with them and how much time you let them talk. So all the things that they teach you in medical school, I think it's called FIFE. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what that stands for, but it's, it's so important to set the, set the scene. It's an unhurried time. It's quiet. You're not going to get interrupted. Right people are in the room. It's a, it's a safe place, and you just ask them, tell me about your dad, tell me about your husband, tell me about your brother, tell me what kind of a person he was, what was important to him. Let them talk. Let them tell you. And have you found that you're able to do that with every patient you have, given the demands of being a critical care doctor? I can tell you that if you spend that time up front 
in the end, it saves you a lot more time and a lot more grief with families because it's you have to spend a lot of time to clean up misunderstandings, but to, to be curious and get that understanding from the beginning and that trust and not be in a hurry to jump in and judge and rush them into a decision. Spending that time up front is really powerful. And so when you get back to, you know, how do you spend your days as an intensivist? Now with the model where there's one person who does the rounds during the day and another person manages everything that's outside of the walls of the ICU, there's time in the afternoons to spend time with the families and to touch base with them and to schedule them in and, you know, really important and get get pastoral care there, spiritual care or their minister and get a social worker there and get the bedside nurse there, get all those people there that, that are going to help them. And uh, that's the really satisfying. That's when you go home at the end of the day and you look in the mirror and you go, I did a good job today. You know, that that's what makes you feel good at the end of the day is making those connections and having that go well. So it sounds like you have a real passion for medical education and training very reflective medical students. I'm wondering how you got involved with UBC faculty. That's a good question. So when I left Vancouver to go to Kelowna, I didn't know much about Kelowna, except that they had a job in critical care there that I really wanted. And uh, turned out it was a great place to live and I made it my home. Uh, but I really missed um, leaving the medical school and the teaching environment. But as you know, the program has expanded across the province. So first it was the expansion of the family medicine program to Kelowna. And I was in charge of um, the ICU rotation for the rural family medicine um, students. And oh man, that was fun. That was really fun because they're going out to the front lines, you know, in a year and they're pretty excited to learn stuff and that was really good and I got a, a preceptor teaching award of the year from one of the groups there that I just think of them with such great fondness and then um, as we added to the numbers of uh, you know when the, when the undergraduate program expanded in numbers we needed more electives and so then I started the year four elective in the ICU in Kelowna and we start getting lots of medical students through and really, really fun. So um, they came and asked me if I would be the year three site director for year three in Kelowna and start to build capacity for rotations in Kelowna. Um, I said, sure, not knowing what I was getting into. and. Um, that was really exciting. So piloting the first surgery rotation in Kelowna and the first um, pediatrics rotation in Kelowna and first internal medicine rotation in Kelowna and then having it, doing all the rotations for four students and then all the rotations for 12 students and then finally our own Southern Medical um, Program cohort of you know 24 students at Kelowna every year. And as I sat on the different various undergraduate committees, um, sometimes we would be discussing a problem and I think, you know, surely this problem has been, you know, encountered by other educators. 
I really need to know more. I need, I need to bring something to the table. And so I looked for a master's program in health professions education and was very fortunate to go to University of Illinois, Chicago. That was the days before the Center for Health Education Scholarship here at UBC. So now you can do that master's program here with a Maastricht, uh, dig, uh, master's and the UBC clinical educator um, program. But in the, those days, I did it in Chicago. So that was kind of how I got interested. But I was doing some medical administration before, and I have to say this is much more satisfying. Education's a lot more satisfying. Do you miss uh, being in critical care? Oh, because I retired in July. Mm. Um, you know, I, I had a great career, and I ended on a high note. And I feel very lucky and fortunate that I ended on a high note. Mm -hmm. And um, do I miss it? Probably not. You know, I've, I've done it. And I'm doing something new now. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful for that career. And I'm happy I did it. And I loved walking in there every day. But I wanted to... It's not something you can dabble in. I really wanted to end it on my terms and on a high note. So I still remember my last month, my last week, my last shift, my last intubation, my last resuscitation, my last central line, and it felt good. It really felt good. So changing hats here, uh, what does a typical day look like for an associate dean? Oh. Now that's still a huge learning curve. You wouldn't believe the things that have come across my desk every day. It's fascinating. Um, external requests and inquiries and internal requests and inquiries. And um, yeah, it's different every day. Different every day, but I love it. And I like working with student leadership. That's the really great part of it. Yeah, for our listeners uh, tuning in, Dr. Holmes was uh, leading our town hall meeting today uh, to go over some of the, the questions regarding um, some of the administrative components of the medical education at UBC. It sounds like you've had a really varied and full career. Mm -hmm. Looking back on everything you have experienced and, and done and tried and all the training you've been through, what have been some of the major surprises for you? Something you didn't expect? as that grade four student wanting to be a doctor and then as a medical student in our shoes? Well, I thought in my naive grade four mind that somehow if I just learned enough science, I would uncover the, the miracle of life. And it, I never did. I mean, it was always a miracle. Every baby I delivered, it was always like, it was you. It was a person in there. Two cells became a person. How does that happen? And then being an end-of-life physician, just that sacredness of life, and how does some a person go from being dead at one moment, I mean, alive at one moment and dead at the next, and then in some cases, then alive again the next? How does that happen? What is that about? So those are kind of the deep mysteries that, you know, I thought I would understand and never did. <laughs> I guess the biggest surprise is um, 
you know, how limited our understanding of life really is. Do you think that made you have a greater appreciation for life? Absolutely. And humility. And so given that your career has been so full and jam-packed, I can't imagine doing the amount of training that you've done. How did you find balancing all your professional demands with your family life and personal life? Um, well, that's a very good question. I have a really great family. I got to say that, number one. I was fortunate to be raised in a family where I was supported and the world was my oyster and the sky was the limit and, you know, didn't experience any adverse childhood events. And so very, very fortunate, but, you know, very strong work ethic from my Russian Mennonite background that, you know, to those who are given much, much is required and that, you know, your, your life is really a service to others and that's what it is and that's what just drove me and um, yes I had family along the way and children along the way and they've grown up to be extraordinary individuals um, what I would say is I wish I'd spent less time feeling guilty at, about being at work when I was at work and guilty about being home when I was at home you know just be where you are where you are is where you are and that's that's where you are and that's where you that's where you're making your contribution and just be fully engaged in that be fully in and my kids are both really great people and uh, I hope that um, I hope that a little bit of who they are is because of who I was but it takes a village so I had a lot of support too so you gave yourself, your younger self, some advice earlier, and that was to listen to the patient. Do you have any advice for students right now in our shoes, coming into third year and feeling the pressure of needing to pick a specialty? Um, and, and since we don't have the option to do a rotating internship, do you have any advice on how we can choose and make the best decision for ourselves? Um, it's really hard to stop that voice in your head that's constantly talking to you. You won't be able to stop it, but you can be aware of it and name it and just say, yeah, okay, I hear you. I'm just going to be where I am right now and just enjoy every minute of it. My goodness. And you know, honestly, I think that whatever you end up in, that's where you, you can be happy. I don't think that happiness is something that comes to us after we attain everything we think we're supposed to attain. Happiness is right now. Happiness is right here, right now. This is what we dwell in. And then I think that those things happen. And they happen or they don't. So just bring your best self to work every day. And what, our, what my students told me about losing empathy in third year is, and we published this, Harry and I, it's called Almost Forgetting to Care. 
It wasn't burnout that made them lose empathy and it wasn't poor role modeling. It was when they started to get really good at the business of being a physician and really good at the tasks that they caught themselves almost forgetting to care. And the, it's the routinization because it might be, oh, not another suicide attempt. This is like the 20th this week. But for that person right there, that's their first. And so just, you know, um, being present and seeing every individual as completely unique um, and being curious about what brings them here and what's important to them and not making assumptions. And to do that, you have to just ignore the, that thing that's talking to you in your head about your performance all the time. I hope that makes sense. It know. does. No, it was very helpful. Okay. So as we approach the end of our interview, what is something that you're most proud of? I am most proud of the connections that I've made with people along the way the patients who put their trust in me, the patients who prayed for me. A lot of my family practice patients would say, I'm praying for you, Dr. Holmes. I go, oh, good, thank you. Um, I'm proud of my relationships with my colleagues over the years and that I was there to help them and I didn't complain about it for the most part. And... Uh, I'm proud of the learning environment that we're creating in this medical school that starts with respect for each other in and out of meetings and in the hallways and everywhere. And I'm proud of my relationships with, with um, the students. I have a student mentor group in Kelowna and I'm proud that they all chose to come cross-country skiing with me yesterday and over for brunch. I'm like, wow, they had choices. They could be somewhere else. I'm proud of that, <laughs> that they chose to be with me. Very proud of that. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Holmes, and for meeting with us, despite having such an early start to the day. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. My pleasure.